Well, hi everyone. My name is Lalita Duperan. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for South Asia at Stanford University. Welcome to our podcast. Uh, with me today, I have Professor Stephen Young. He's an Associate Professor of Geography and International Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, but this quarter, he's a visiting scholar at the Basic Income Lab uh, here at Stanford University. And uh, today he'll be talking about his research in South Asia. Uh, Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's just dig straight into the work you're doing here at Stanford. Your project looks at the rising popularity of basic income, particularly in India. Uh, what is basic income and why has it been in the news recently? Uh, so basic income, um, and, and in particular universal basic income, is, is a cash transfer from the state to all individuals uh, that is given unconditionally. That is to say there is no requirement to fulfill some behavioral criteria uh, or to work uh, in, under, in order to receive it. Um, and it's been in the news a lot recently because, of course, we're living through a global pandemic, which means that uh, lockdown measures have been imposed in, in many parts of the world and millions of people have lost their jobs or are unable to go out and work and earn wages. And so it's one of many policies that is being floated as a, as a way to uh, address uh, basically the, the, the need for people to find a means to, to survive through this particular crisis. Now, What's happening is it's being uh, mooted as a, as a kind of stopgap, as an emergency measure. And that's what's ha just happened in the U.S., for example. You get this sort of one-off uh, for now payment uh, into people's bank accounts. But many people are mobilizing to say that that kind of system, that kind of uh, cash transfer, should be extended at least through the, the pandemic and also beyond that. And the reason for that is even before the pandemic uh, broke out, there was a lot of momentum behind this idea. It's, a, it's a, an idea that has a very long uh, history and, and, and a very inspired very diverse political movements. But in the last 10 years or so, it's had a real resurgence because mostly to do with, uh, with jobs and, and economic insecurity. So in the global north, we know that there are more and more people working in what is called the gig economy and other insecure forms of employment that are often low wage. Mm -hmm. uh, and predictions about automation, um, and artificial intelligence are, are saying that more and more human labor is going to be eroded by those kinds of technological advances. And so that's why basic income is being proposed uh, by people like Andrew Yang in the, in the U.S. And, and other parts of the global north. And in the global south, you have a situation where those kinds of jobs just never really materialized on the scale that was needed anyway. And India is a prime example of this, um, where you have you know a lot of talk about accelerating GDP growth, but actually very poor statistics in terms of job creation uh, to meet the, the, the needs of, of a growing working age population. So different kinds of contexts, but the same kind of question being asked around what can basic income do in that kind of, um, in that kind of context. And my research is specifically looking at, at the India case and how basic income is, is being intertwined with other discourses in India about local economies, small scale production and, and social justice. So um, you mentioned the, the, the quote-unquote stimulus payment that we all received. I mean, it, it, uh, a, a lot of people I know haven't received it yet because of different uh, issues around that, uh, but there was absolutely no uh, uh, kind of a way of looking at what people actually needed, and so everybody got it, and, and that seems 
uh, a, a little problematic because it wasn't that much. If you really can't pay your rent, then it's not going to last you that long. And so for some people, it was a nice little bit of extra. And for other people, it wasn't anywhere near enough. So I imagine uh, there's lots of different ways that one can look at these basic income programs as you know, what, what are you actually trying to achieve? And I, I um, understand that in India, there are worldwide, there are different ways of looking at it. But I want to ask you specifically about the different types of programs that are being proposed in India. Yeah, so I think that it's uh, probably at the start, what we should say is that in India, there's only been a handful of, of basic income programs thus far in the true sense of that term. And they've all been... Um, short-term uh, local experiments to understand the, the impacts of those programs, particularly on low-income uh, households. So the most well-known of this is a, a, a pilot that was conducted in 2011 to 2013 in, in Madhya Pradesh, where it was conducted by SEVA, the Self-Employed Women's Association, with some academics and also with some international funding. And they randomly selected seven villages and gave all the adults in that, those villages 300 rupees a month. And all the women in those villages, an extra 150 rupees per month per child. And what they were really looking at is what kinds of, of um, gains do you see if poor people have that kind of, of, of economic floor, that kind of um, income uh, to support themselves on a consistent basis. And they published the results from this study, which showed some really positive things in terms of improved nutrition, improved um, school attendance in terms of people being able to... Um, make investments in their housing or other kinds of productive assets. And, and, and that garnered a lot of attention uh, in India. But as of yet, um, there hasn't been a big move to expand, um, you know, that kind of, uh, or scale up that particular kind of, of pilot. Instead, I think what we're seeing is uh, at the state level, some interesting ways in which states are moving towards something like a basic income through what I'm going to show us sort of two distinct ways one is what we're seeing um, in terms of a shift from in-kind forms of welfare, where the state would, for example, um, buy at a, at, a, at a certain guaranteed price rice from some uh, producers and then distribute it to people uh, who need it. A shift away from that to more uh, um, cash-based uh, forms of welfare, or what in India is sometimes called direct benefit transfers. So this has been happening nationally as, as well, but certainly at the state level, it's, it's been accelerating in some places. And Telangana is really a, a leader uh, in this movement. And when it was created as a new state in 2014, the new government looked to introduce a whole uh, array of these cash transfer programs, the most well-known of which is Raithu Bandhu, the, the Farmer's Friend Scheme, which transfers 5,000 rupees per acre to everybody with a land title in rural Telangana twice a year, the start of each growing season. The logic being this will help you to pay for some of the inputs uh, you need to be, uh, to be farming. And yeah. um, so that's what's happening in Telangana. Um, but many other states are looking at similar kinds of, of, of programs as well, including Orissa, which actually has um, a similar program that's much more progressive in the sense of it covers landless um, uh, uh, people as well, landless households, and actually skews the benefits towards people with smaller land holdings rather than larger land holdings. But I think we're seeing this similar kinds of ideas beginning to, to gain traction in many states in India. The second way I think that we see this happening, though, is has a different kind of starting point, whereby 
Uh, it, it's more about encouraging people to think of themselves as, as the inheritors and, and custodians of, uh, of, of a shared commons and, and to think about how we might then uh, manage that, those commons on a, on a way that supports social justice and also intergenerational justice. So here the leader, I would say, is Goa, where there's a social movement, the Goenshi Mati movement, um, that has pushed an agenda uh, that is about combating corruption and environmental degradation through mining in the state, which, of which there's a long history. Mm-hmm. What they're promoting is this idea of zero loss mining, where they're saying all the mineral wealth, particularly iron ore in Goa, that is extracted from the ground has to be stored in, in, you know, in terms of its cash value in a permanent fund, minus you know, the cost of extraction and a small profit. And then that fund would keep that, that, that wealth in its entirety so that it could be passed down to future generations if indeed in the current moment we decide to burn those, uh, you know, burn fossil fuels or extract that iron ore. And they actually won a legal case to have that permanent fund created in the state. And their idea is that then they would invest the, the money that comes into the permanent fund, just like Norway, say, does with its sovereign wealth fund. And then the return, none of the principal, but only the returns on those investments would, as, it, as the fund grows, would be distributed as a, as a basic income to all residents in Goa. So those are two quite different movements, but they're all converging around a, the idea of a basic income. And I think as they begin to interconnect with one another, one another more and learn from one another i think that's what could be really exciting in terms of building some momentum nationally for a a basic income that is very progressive this is uh, fascinating and and it's good to hear that there are um already some positive results coming out of that i want to talk more about um some of the philosophy but uh first a very practical question going back to the the stimulus uh, money we just received here in the united states or at least the people that have bank accounts linked up to their um I, to the IRS, receive the money. I think other people are still waiting for checks and, and it, it's a more complicated system. So if it's already a little bit tricky here, uh, where most people are plugged into internet banking, etc., cetera, uh, what would that look like in India? Just the practicality of getting the money to people. Yeah, that was something that um, myself and my collaborator, Vasco Rao, who's an economist based in Hyderabad, uh, were interested in when we were doing interviews with people in three villages in Telangana last November. And we were actually surprised by how effective the scheme had been on that regard. This is not to say that there aren't gaps, um, both within Telangana state, but also across India. Um, and, and there are important sort of inequalities in terms of the in infrastructure that would need to be addressed. But overall, it seems to have worked pretty well. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think is important to recognize is that India has made a lot of strides over the last 15, 10 or 15 years or so in terms of having people be able to access formal banking accounts. The motivations for this certainly have not been about basic income. They've been initially under the last Congress administration. It was about ramping up bank access to, uh, to facilitate microfinance loans. Um, you know, and then, but you know, that got a start on that. And then Modi's administration had a program to increase uh, you know this in terms of financial inclusion but even things like the demonetization drive in 2016 which obviously created tremendous hardship for many people did nevertheless as a, as a consequence push people more in the direction of, 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 of formal bank accounts and electronic money and so I do think that right now there's there's the possibility that this kind of a program on a larger scale uh, could really be rolled out quite successfully in India, albeit with the obvious need to pay attention to places where 
uh, where there are, are problems in terms of people being able to access that. Okay, all right. That's uh, that's uh, it's it's all very encouraging so far. Uh, thank <laughs> you, thank you. Um, so <clears throat> you um, you mentioned that there are different philosophies around uh, where the emphasis should be. So um, in Telangana, the way I understand it, uh, there's a kind of a, a link between how much land people have and what they receive, or how that is kind of graded. Whereas in um, Odisha, they might. L- place more emphasis on uh, the less um, the less well-to-do or the more disenfranchised farmers. And I can see lots of arguments around that. And I think one of the arguments I've heard here in the United States that, you know, if you give people a, a guaranteed basic income, it's going to discourage them from working in the labor market. And, um, you know, you can imagine that someone who's worked hard to maybe, you know, get some land is then overlooked in this kind of a scheme or doesn't get as much, may feel a little resentful about that. So how does that, how does that work? How do basic income advocates defend against these arguments that it will incentivize people to work less or, or do we, how do they negotiate that? Yeah, in terms of the, the question of whether people will be um, sort of discouraged from working and, and that it'll work as a, as a disincentive, um, I, I guess one thing would be to say that empirically, you know, what the studies that have been done in India and elsewhere thus far don't show that to be the case. And in fact, what the, the pilot study that was done in Madhya Pradesh showed was that um, many people were able to not work, choose to not work um, in, in terms of wage labor under very exploitative conditions, uh, often for some wealthy landlord who they may, you know, um, uh, be in debt to. And instead, as a consequence of that, be able to work on whatever smaller amount of land that they might have uh, to be able to work and, and, and cultivate that land, which in the past they hadn't been able to do. So in that sense, you could say, well, there's, 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 they're working, doing less waged work, um, but they're working, they're, they're sort of self-employed to, to some extent now and being able to cultivate their own land, which is, for, for many of them, was a, a feeling of real empowerment. And I found similar things in the, in the preliminary work that we've done in Telangana. Just as one story from there, in one of the villages, there was a, a group of young men who were doing a variety of jobs and, and um, in some cases, migrating to... Uh, the city to Hyderabad to be able to, to find additional work, who then realized that with this uh, money they were getting through the Raitu Bandhu scheme, they could collectively rent out their, uh, the land that they held to a, a solar power company that would then pay them you know, to, 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 to lease that land um, uh, so that they could have solar panels there. And so in that sense, they were also saying, well, we've actually been able to decrease some of the wage labor that we're doing, but it's in a way that has been really beneficial to us um, in terms of it's allowed us to, to rethink uh, how we want to, to uh, make ends meet and, and given us more opportunities to think about staying in, in the village where, we're, uh, where we grew up. So there's interesting dynamics here, but o- overall what I would say is in all the studies that have been done uh, that I know of, certainly there's pilots being done in Kenya, there's work that's been done in Namibia, and in the, the projects that were done in, in India, it actually gave people an opportunity not to, to work less. It wasn't a disincentive to, to work, but an opportunity to um, have some more choice over the kinds of work that they did, and in some cases reject very exploitative work. And, you know, the, the good thing about that is that it means that for those jobs that are often low paid, and, and, and but, but socially, you know, very 
uh, necessary, it means that the people who are trying to recruit people to, to work for them uh, will have to ultimately raise wages as a consequence to be able to entice people in if, if some of them are turning away from that and saying, well, you know, I don't need to be a, 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 you know, a day laborer every day of the week now because I have a little bit more freedom in terms of the economic decisions that I make. So that's been one of the positives that's come out in terms of the actual empirical studies. And, you know, I suppose at some level, I may be a, a little different from other people, but I also think it's worth defending the idea of, um, of, of leisure time, you know, and, and the working less might not always be a, you know, should always be seen as a, a bad thing and that people have a right to, 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 to do time pass for some of their, uh, you know, some of their days. Um, and and that what that can actually do is, is enable people to connect with others in their community or family or, or friends more and that there are certain other kinds of positives that can emerge out of that. So, you know, those, those would be uh, two responses to that. It, it's uh, that's super interesting that the time pass issue because I think with um, many of us now working from our homes, that's something that we struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. Is how do you kind of uh, how do you demarcate work and leisure, but also how can you kind of integrate the two? And so one of the things that I like to do is listen to podcasts. Uh, and here we are, we are now creating a podcast. And so um, I think that's a good example of how we kind of start to rethink. Uh, how we uh, look at work and look at leisure time and, and kind of bring them more together. You mentioned a kind of undervalued uh, but socially important work. So I just want to uh, take the conversation in that um, direction in that um, many people, the majority uh, poor women, uh, are already working without being paid. And I would say that's a, a, a pretty much a fact the world over. Uh, rearing children um, and then uh, more particular perhaps to the global south carrying water long distances gathering firewood uh, and then cooking cleaning etc etc we can uh, we can build on that list uh, that work um, clearly is beneficial for society although I would say often wholly unrecognized um, so should they get the same payment as somebody who may spend the money at the bar or you know goes off and 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 plays sports or you know who's less perhaps socially beneficial so um in other words should basic income programs reward people doing valuable activities or just leave that entirely up to people themselves yeah this is another um another long-standing um source of, of, of debate and, <laughs> and dispute in people who have thought through uh, questions related to universal basic income I imagine, yeah. Going right back to, you know, there's a, a piece in, uh, published by uh, a Belgian philosopher Philippe Van Parkis back in 1991 called Why Surfers Should Be Fed. And, um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of interest as well, obviously, as you've alluded to there in terms of gendered inequalities, in terms of this kind of socially reproductive labor from feminist scholars as well. And in fact, one of the sort of forerunners of this idea of universal basic income, or one of its other kind of, uh, mutations was um, a movement in the 1970s called Wages for Housework that was part of this sort of second wave feminism that was precisely about trying to make visible and therefore value and uh, valued and and uh, you know socially and economically uh, the uh, phenomenal amount of, of essential but unpaid or low-paid work done by women uh, in the home and 
you know, there's also been in India more recently, as there, as there is talk in India of like, should this be targeted for, for practical reasons or to recognize these kinds of inequalities that you're drawing attention to? Should it be given to all women in India rather than to, you know, all individuals, including men? I think the problem when we get into that kind of targeting is that as much as it would on the one hand uh, recognize and value that kind of currently unpaid uh, labor, uh, it would also, as uh, some people argue, and I, I think there's a, a case to be made here, that um, it reproduces an, a, a gendered ideology in which the expectation is that the woman would do the vast majority of that work. Um, so, you, you know, it's, it, it's a, a problem then in terms of, um, of, of, of how you're actually sort of entrenching particular ideas. And, you know, even if you gave it as a, as, a, as a sort of caregiver's allowance to a household and allowed them to choose who would take that, in most cases you would anticipate that the woman is, would, would in most cases be on a lower wage and would be therefore economically and also socially more likely to drop out of the labor market and do that work at home. So that would be the argument, I guess, for, for there being major drawbacks to that. But it does raise the, the, the issue that basic income alone can't transform these kinds of gendered inequalities. But what we would really want to see, I think, is a shift in terms of the distribution of that kind of uh, socially reproductive labor away from women and towards a more equitable uh, distribution. And I do wonder whether basic income could at least play a role in that as, as one cog in a, in, a, in a suite of policies to shift, to, to, to cultivate that shift at an individual and household level and also in terms of our, our broader institutions in society. And just something, you know, more anecdotally from my fieldwork, you know, when I talked to a group of young men in one village and I said, you know, what, if you did have more time, you know, what, what do you think you'd be able to do with that time? Um, you know, because you, you could work less because you had this kind of basic income support. And a number of them did. I'd say about half of the young men that I spoke to did talk as in part of their response about spending time with their children. And so I do think that combined with other kinds of policies that I, I would be happy to say might be, you know, would likely be even more important, but that this could provide a, a sort of a level of income that could support that reorientation in terms of how we value and distribute that kind of that kind of labor so but you know this is something that again it's a question i'm really interested in in terms of the research that i'm i'm doing for this project and i think it's something that we know relatively little about i'm sure that there are studies that have been done on what happens when you give parental leave as opposed to just maternity leave in in some wealthier countries um you know, in terms of the balance of, of uh, labor that we could maybe learn from here in terms of, of how to enable uh, basic income uh, if it was given universally to do some of that same work. Yeah, that's super interesting. I imagine there's going to be a lot of studies coming out of our current period with everybody being home with their children uh, to see how that plays out. I, I, I imagine uh, there's a lots of um, kind of unspoken gender dynamics that perhaps didn't really uh, arise before with people working out of the home and children being in school or in childcare facilities. Uh, and now everybody's home. And I imagine that uh, things are being restructured in, in interesting ways. So I, I, uh, I suppose there will be some data just coming out of the United States and, uh, and um, other countries as well that might feed into what you're talking about. Absolutely. I think that this is, you know, uh, you know, I know that everybody feels as though whatever they're excited about or working on, this is a sort of critical uh, moment. But I, I do think in terms of drawing attention to that, that 
care work and, and thinking about how we value different kinds of, of work in our society in terms of thinking about who is an essential worker. Well, you know, we know who are the people who are being told you have to go out and, and work. You are indispensable to the reproduction of society on a, on a daily, let alone generational basis now. And, and so I think that that can help kickstart a, a conversation about how care fits into our ideas about um, about the economy and who's doing that work and, and who's not doing that work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thinking about um, South Asia and, and India, where your research is in particular, um, <laughs> a lot of people, uh, and so um, I mean, that would always be an argument against some kind of basic income that, you know, we just don't have the money. Um, and, you know, that of course, very much depends on, on how you look at that. But I do wonder if, if uh, countries should always be expected to fund their own, own basic income or whether there should be uh, a kind of a, a global recognition of, of how the world um, has gained wealth and, and who has helped create that wealth. Uh, so whether then wealthier countries should in some way be obligated to contribute to basic income programs in in poorer countries, really recognizing the, the history of unequal interdependencies? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important question and, and it, it, you can illustrate that by the fact that uh, in many places where basic income has gained the most ground, it's often in uh, middle-income countries that have considerable natural resources, I would say, uh, you know, that, that are being used to, to uh, fund a basic income. And in some cases, it's being, it's also kind of smaller uh, states. And even within India, the example that I gave before of Goa, you know, it's Goa's doing that experiment around mining in Sikkim in the Northeast. There's um, a similar proposal that has been, that was, that was put forward um, by the Sikkim Democratic Front Party to, to use uh, hydropower revenues in the same way. But clearly there's an unequal distribution of wealth that was has its roots in, in, in the histories of capitalism and colonialism. There's an unequal distribution of resources that different nations and different states could claim here. So how do you enable this to sort of grow given those kinds of inequalities is, is an important question. And what, one way to think about that, as you allude to, is, I mean, even... Within the US, for example, the, the uh, Black Power Movement in the 1960s and more recently um, uh, the Black Lives Matter Movement have supported um, basic income, um, you know, partly on the grounds of this as being a, a form of reparations um, for, for slavery and, and the histories of, of racism and, and, um, and exclusion and inequality in the US. And you could think about putting that in a global frame and saying, well, you know, like the, the world is, is extremely unequal in terms of wealth and should wealthier countries, particularly those who we know, you know, colonized um, uh, other parts of the world, be obligated to contribute, not in this sense, in the form of a, of a, you know, development, so to speak, where, you know, which comes with all kinds of strings attached uh, by those the, the countries that are giving that aid, but rather in the form of, uh, of a kind of reparations. So that would be one way to think about how you could move towards a, a global basic income um, in, in a world of, of such uh, vast inequality. The other way to think about it that I think is really interesting is to think about a global basic income that would be funded by the global commons. And this is something that's being uh, supported by some organizations. Um, and here the idea would be there's a lot of uh, a lot of what we think of as the commons, um, you know, can't be sort of fixed to any particular 
territorial uh, boundaries. So think about carbon emissions, for example. This is something where you've got transnational flights that are emitting carbon, carrying different people to different places, and that are, is ultimately um, you know, fueling climate change that will impact the whole world in, in, in different ways. So should a tax on, on carbon emissions you know, be used to, to fund a global basic income? You could even, uh, Guy Standing, who's a professor who's worked on, on these issues, has talked about the idea of, you know, we all have a frequent flyer uh, account and what that frequent flyer account with airlines does for wealthier people is it, it means that we can get discounts on on flights in the future what if instead we said the number of miles you fly the, the amount of money you have to pay into a global fund that would pay out a, a global basic income you can imagine there's one organization based in manchester actually that's saying what about a global basic income of $50 a month? Now, that might not make a huge difference to many people uh, in, in wealthier countries, but that would be, you'd have to think, transformative in, in many other parts of the world. And so I think there's interesting conversations about the scale at which this happens. And I think that will be true of India as well, in terms of how uh, the kind of ideas that Goa is proposing or in Sikkim can, can sort of work with, you know, in, in India, sub soil minerals are, are actually um, part of the, the state jurisdiction of the state government, not the center. So, you know, how do you think through a, a national basic income, um, you know, uh, given, given those, those kinds of, of, of issues? Well, it's so dense. I, I, I feel that this, this, uh, the research you're doing was uh, already uh, just, there's so much to talk about, but I do feel it's really being kind of crystallized now in, in the current, COVID situations, I mean, just talking about carbon emissions and, you know, the way we're all going to rethink about um, flying. I mean, I hope uh, that's so uh, I think, well, I hope perhaps more than think that there will be some very serious conversations uh, in the next few months and years about um, our, our kind of lifestyle and, and our uh, connectivity to the environment, etc. So, um, I feel that this discussion of a basic income also really uh, fits into that. Um, yeah, and I think it would be it would be really important and, and interesting to think through ways we can fuse together the urgent need to address climate change and, and health inequalities, and also you know alleviate poverty and poor housing and and other factors that we know are, are problems in themselves, but also have been shown to be you know uh, uh, underlying social conditions that, that make people more vulnerable uh, when there are these uh, outbreaks of, of viruses like this. You alluded earlier that uh, when, when I asked about, you know, should certain people get more or should that um, basic income be distributed differently, you, you kind of said it, 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 that's perhaps not a good idea for a variety of reasons. Um, but nevertheless, it feels that having a, a real universal basic income uh, it feels a little counterintuitive because they're just, I mean, I don't know where you would put the cutoff point, but we know, and this discussion also came up around the $1,200 stimulus check. I mean, we know that there are a lot of people who simply do not need any help, none whatsoever. Uh, and yet everybody got their $1,200 um, if they were in the system and, and hopefully everybody else will get it. Um, so, you know, uh, if we're talking about the uber wealthy in India, in Mukesh Ambani comes to mind just as a person that we know of who's, who's very, very wealthy. Uh, 
should they also be included in, in their extra, I don't know, 500, 5,000 rupees a month? And if not, then who, who calls that? How do you decide then who's kind of outside of that realm? Yeah, this is um, a, a really difficult issue to navigate because there is, as, as you're saying, there's, there's clearly huge differences in terms of, of need and to the extent that there are some people who obviously don't need uh, some extra cash uh, from the state. Um, and a lot of people would look at this and say, there's also, you know, finite resources we can mobilize to support a program like this. So why not, you know, you could double, triple the amount that you're giving really poor people in India if you found a way to exclude, um, you know, half the population, if that were indeed, you know, the cutoff point that doesn't need it, or maybe 25% of the population. So why not spread it around in a way that, um, you know, supports people more more effectively. And, you know, this has been tried in some of the earlier experiments as well, where you could say, you know, there's a, a, an amount of money, let's say, um, uh, you know, a, a couple of thousand rupees a month that you get. And uh, if you don't want to do any waged work, uh, then you can just take that and live off that. But you can also top it up by doing waged labor. But at a certain point, um, as your income rises, we begin to uh, tax your benefit at, you know, at a, at a rate of 50%. So it gradually phases out. And when you get to a sort of middle class income, let's say, you know, it fades out altogether. So it would be possible to design something like that. That's more what people call a, a guaranteed minimum income um, uh, program, uh, rather than a basic income program that is universal and goes to everyone. And, and it makes sense. That's, that's where the conversation's at in India right now. That's why Telangana is only doing it for rural households. That's why when Congress put together a proposal uh, for a national basic income uh, in the run-up to the last election, it said this will go to the, the uh, poorest 20% of households in, in, in India. And, you know, you're still talking there about, you know, 350 million people. So uh, how negligible amount of people. There would be two, I think, arguments that are important in terms of, of, of the problems with that. And, and one is that targeting of any kind, um, it can be expensive and, and also uh, flawed. Um, so anytime you're trying to exclude people, you have to decide who's going to be excluded and what these cutoff points are going to be, and then how that is going to be uh, implemented and monitored. And some people would just say, you know, like once again, now you're building a, 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 a administrative capacity around that that is going to drain some of the funds from the program, including some of the funds that you're hoping to save by excluding, you know, this this particular population, depending on how, how generous the scheme is. And that also creates opportunities potentially for more kinds of, of, of leakage in the system as, as corruption is sometimes euphemistically referred to. Um, but I think a more fundamental problem is that it also, it's really hard to know that it's going to the people who need it. So take the case of Telangana. Um, even aside from the fact that it's very regressive in terms of giving more money to people with more land, in, in many cases, what myself and Basker found when we were doing the interviews is that the, the person with the land title, especially people who own larger amounts of land in rural Telangana, had often moved and were now living in the city. And they were leasing out that land to, you know, someone who was landless or didn't have much land and was, you know, going to lease that land for them to be able to engage in some uh, 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 crop production. So that means that the person in, let's say, Hyderabad with all the, uh, you know, who's living in the city, who's just leasing out the land is getting the money from the person who's leasing it and they're getting the benefit from the state. The person who's actually doing the farming and bearing all the risks of that 
and, and, and spending money on the inputs gets nothing because they don't have the land title. So there is a case to be made. I think that targeting creates this kind of complexity that sometimes ends up, uh, at the very least, it means more money is diverted away from recipients, but often into um, uh, uh, figuring out strategies for how to, um, you know, actually enforce this kind of exclusion criteria. Um, and it often ends up penalizing some people who could really benefit. And I think the second thing is that if you said everyone gets this, and if you took the sort of GOA model and said everyone gets this because this is this is everyone's rightful share of, of an inherited commons, uh, you know, and, and we can take our share, but we also have to pass this down, you know, like to future generations as well. I think that creates a, a more powerful shift in terms of people's political subjectivity in terms of seeing themselves as as kind of shareholders and, and you know in, in and stewards of a of a, of a commons uh, that we have to, to to manage in the interests of, of social and intergenerational justice at one level so I, you know i think that's really helpful and i also think that it helps to destigmatize um you know these kinds of cash transfers or other benefits it doesn't mean oh you get that because you're deserving or you're undeserving or you know but it doesn't fuel that resentment of which we know is sort of um, um uh, increased by uh, prejudices in society around caste and class and, and, and religion of why should these people be receiving it it would just simply say this is you know everybody's uh, rightful share so i think that you know practically some kind of targeting you would imagine in India initially is going to be uh, important just to be able to sort of uh, introduce this program if it were happening uh, nationally. But I think that there's, there's good reasons to sort of maintain a, a, a sort of a view towards uh, really having it as a, a universal basic income, um, you know, as moving forward. Yeah, I was thinking about the, how uh, free lunch in the United States, free lunch programs have become a kind of a code, have become kind of a code for socioeconomic needs. So uh, what you're saying that, that then it becomes yet another marker of um, marginalization. So um, better to think of it more broadly. Uh, and yeah. I very much liked your view of a kind of uh, in the go and model, you know, kind of recognizing people's stewardship of the environment. And, and again, something that's so current uh, in this COVID moment where we're all so aware that, you know, we are not good for the planet and, and there'll be really uh, phenomenal um, developments coming out of that where I think people will be much more cognizant of the fact that we are stewards of, of the land which often wasn't ours to begin with uh, in most cases and so therefore we need to think of different ways of living. Yeah absolutely and um, you know when you were raising the point about the sort of stigma of certain kinds of social programs it made me think about not only that the way in which targeting can exclude people who, you know, really, when we would look at this ethically, we say, should say, oh, they, they were intended beneficiaries of this program, but the way that targeting work has excluded them. It's also that when people are actually recognized as being um, a part of a program, we've all heard stories. I mean, it's true here as well as in India, but in, in India, we hear lots of stories about people who are qualify for some benefit, but have to spend so much time demonstrating that they qualify for it and often having to pay money to get pieces of paper that to pass on to some state official to qualify that in many cases people just you know give up uh, you know or, or don't even bother so the, that combination of the stigma and also the amount of labor that that can create not just for for the state but in particular for for people who are the intended 
beneficiaries of these programs means that there's a, a strong movement to really think critically about what targeting uh, you know, can accomplish and, and what the problems might be. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating uh, look into universal basic income. We need to wrap up. Um, I imagine that, you know, six months or a year uh, down the line, there'll be uh, lots of new insights. So I'd like to invite you to come back uh, and update us on your research further down the road. But for now, I just want to thank you for taking time to uh, speak to the Center for South Asia at Stanford and um, uh, good luck with everything that's ahead. Thank you so much, Lalita.